Well, in the empire of ancient Rome, uh, imprisonment was not a punishment for crime. Okay? Uh, there were no prisons as we have them today, that, like there was no Goulburn or uh, Long Bay jail equivalent, where men and women were, were sentenced to be held a, as a penalty uh, for crime. And this is because in the Roman Empire, if you were found guilty of a crime, then you would either be fined uh, or fl maybe flogged or sentenced to a, a term of um, uh, hard labour in a salt mine or something like that, or you'd be executed, uh, depending on the nature of your crime. But you wouldn't be sent to prison. Prisons were sec for securing people who were awaiting trial or who were awaiting for their sentence to be carried out. But if you were a Roman citizen, as Paul was, then you could wait for many months, you could wait for, for even for years while the details of your case were sorted out. The principal holding prison in Rome was uh, what is known today as the Mamertine prison, uh, located near the law court in the Roman Forum, as you can see in this photo of the ancient ruins of uh, the Forum in Rome. It was an underground dungeon. Uh, it was built entirely from stone, and the prisoners and their guards were lowered into the dungeon through a hole in the ceiling. There was no way out, that was the only way in. Uh, the first century BC Roman historian Sallust described it as about 12 feet under the ground. And he wrote, Its appearance is disgusting and vile by reason of the filth, the darkness and the stench. So imagine uh, a dark damp dungeon, there are no toilets, so it's reeking of human waste, it's reeking of hopelessness and fear, and every prisoner is chained to the wall by their ankles. Well, according to uh, early tradition, this is where the Apostle Paul was being held when he wrote the letter before us of 2 Timothy. Now, I know, you know, some ancient traditions can be a bit sus, but uh, this tradition is likely to be true because we know that this was at the holding prison in Rome in the first century AD when uh, Paul was in prison for the, for the last time. You see, Paul's situation has changed very dramatically. When he'd previously been imprisoned in Rome, um, he was actually under house arrest. He was able to rent a house. Now, that was after, remember, he was uh, arrested in Jerusalem uh, on, on false charges, I think he was held in Caesarea for a couple of years, and then he appealed to Caesar and was transported to Rome. We haven't got time to go through all that. But his, his time in Rome at that, that stage was under house arrest. Um, he had a good deal of freedom. He was probably fairly loosely guarded, maybe by a single a soldier, and he was eventually released. But this time, Paul's situation is much more serious. Uh, he's clearly being held in a horrible prison dungeon. Uh, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, Paul, Paul speaks there of his chains and how Onesiphorus had to search hard to find him in Rome. Why? Because he was in a dungeon. And in chapter 2 and verse 9, he says that he is chained like a criminal, that is, with chains attached to both ankles. He's cold 
He wants Timothy to bring his coat when he comes. He's abandoned. He's been deserted by his friends. Uh, from chapter 4, it seems that he's already undergone, undergone an, an initial trial, and that didn't go very well. And Paul is now waiting for his final appearance in court, and he expects that the outcome will be his execution. So in verse 6 of chapter 4, he writes, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure from this earth. So it's from these very bleak circumstances that Paul now writes to his younger colleague in ministry, his dear friend and colleague, Timothy. And the main purpose of the letter is an appeal to Timothy to come to him as quickly as he can, come to Rome, and also to give Timothy some final instructions. Uh, perhaps in case Timothy arrives too late and Paul's already dead. So Timothy is to leave the church at Ephesus where he's been defending the church against false teachers and he's to come to Paul in Rome. And he's to prepare himself to carry on in gospel ministry just as Paul has been doing. So what is the value for us in this letter? Uh, well, I guess all scripture is valuable, isn't it? But, but as I said earlier, these are Paul's last recorded words before he died, presumably at the hands of the Roman emperor. And they are written with a sense of urgency. And although they're written specifically to Timothy as a pastor and key Christian leader, the underlying principles apply to all of us. Because Timothy was a pastor, I think it's sometimes thought that this letter is mostly applicable to pastors, like Scott. Um, so you would expect talks from 2 Timothy at a pastor's conference. But there's tremendous value for us in 2 Timothy because Paul shows Timothy that everything he does in life is to be based on the gospel. And that will be part of our focus from 2 Timothy over this weekend. How does the gospel shape my life? my behaviour, my relationships, my endurance in suffering, my perseverance in following Jesus. And as we progress, we'll also find that wherever there's a specific instruction to pastors, there's a corresponding application to the rest of us. Uh, let me give you an example that will come up tomorrow. Uh, turn over to chapter 4 and verse 2. where Paul writes to Timothy something that's clearly applicable to all pastors. Uh, the NIV has, uh, in chapter 4 and verse 2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. Now, if that's what a pastor is supposed to do, then there must be an implication for those who are listening to him. That works, doesn't it? If God expects the pastor be, to be faithful in preaching the word, what do you think God expects of those who are listening to the preaching? Well, of course, God expects us to be faithful in responding to the teaching. And throughout the letter, Paul reminds Timothy of the brokenness of the world, uh, its hostility to God, and how Timothy is to live by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. Uh, we can't cover every single verse in four talks over a weekend, but I've selected four passages that I think address the, the main thrust of the letter and pretty much cover 
um, most of what Paul wants to say. So why should Timothy and, and why should you and I live for the Lord Jesus in this broken world? Now, what positive direction does God have for us in this letter? Well, I think the first thing that we should notice as we open this letter, written somewhere in a, in a filthy, stinking prison in Rome, is that Paul says that we should live for the Lord Jesus because of all that God has done for us in the gospel. Paul sees that God is very much at work. You see the hardship of a Roman prison, uh, or trying to live for Jesus in Port Macquarie, is just what God uses to produce courage and faith and perseverance, and to bring himself glory. Uh, we know that Paul's life, ever since he became a follower of Jesus, has been marked by hardship and pain and suffering. But if anything, we've seen that these things have served to give Paul a, a keener appreciation of God's grace, an assurance of God's power working in those who trust him, and a deeper love for the Lord Jesus, who has sustained him in every situation, and so the first thing that you notice, bearing in mind the writer's circumstances, is that Paul is not overwhelmed, is he, by his prison, but he's consumed with what God is doing through Jesus. He's focused on the gospel. Uh, even in his customary introduction in which he tells Timothy that uh, this letter is from himself, from Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, he then adds, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul might be facing death, but what drives him, what shapes each new day in that stinking hole, is the promise of life in Jesus that Paul and every one of God's people has in the gospel. Now, to the outside world, of course, Paul seems to be deluded. Uh, his time in prison is sending him crazy, that's, that's obvious. You see, if Paul had just taken a realistic look at, at his life, then surely he would have realised that it had all gone down the plug hole. This is life in Christ Jesus? Well, who wants it? To sit in your own human waste, to be cold and hungry, cut off from family and friends, no social life, no freedom of any kind, chained to a stone wall waiting for a trial that can only have a really bad ending, is not any sane person's idea of the good life. And no doubt Paul would have liked to have been out of there. But he knows that his outward circumstances are temporary. They're not what defines his life. What defines his life, in Paul's case, is also the reason that he's in prison. Notice in verse 8, Paul describes himself as a prisoner of Jesus. Surely he got that wrong. The Roman authorities that have thrown him into the dungeon. But he, he says that because he believes that the Lord Jesus is in charge of his rotten circumstances, not the Roman emperor. He's awaiting trial because he's a follower of Jesus and he proclaims that Jesus is Lord in opposition to the prevailing thinking of Roman culture that viewed the Roman state as Lord, and in particular the Roman emperor. And it seems from chapter 4 and verse 14 that a man named Alexander has somehow caused Paul to be considered as a dangerous enemy of Rome. 
Now, I don't know about you, uh, but my observation of the world around me is that Australians judge the quality and the meaning of their lives by their physical circumstances. Now, the, the things that are happening to them in life. And I think that's a trap that I can fall into as well. To think that life for me is about having a comfortable home and enough money to live comfortably and for everyone in my family to be healthy and, and happy. Now, those things are great blessings. And I'm truly grateful to God when life is relatively peaceful and I have my comforts. But you see, if those things are what I believe constitute the foundation of my life and the true source of my happiness, then those are the things that I'll focus on, that I'll strive for and cling to and defend if, if anyone tries to take them away from me. And before long, they become my counterfeit gods. But the Bible teaches me and God has confirmed to me in my life that what is the true foundation of my life and happiness and, and what is true for every believer is his kingdom. It's what God is doing in the world and the future he has planned. And therefore, knowing that God is in control of my circumstances, I can be happy and content when things are tough and when we're in the midst of trouble. And there's been those times for Joy and I and when things are comfortable. And so the first lesson I want us to take away from this letter is from Paul's focus on God's work and God's kingdom despite his circumstances. In other words, his life is driven by his understanding of the gospel or the momentous news that God has announced concerning Jesus. Paul's act actually practicing what Jesus taught about seeking first the kingdom of God and then all of these other things will fall into place as God provides. Whatever the measure is of that comfort, uh, whether it's barely existing from one page to the next, or whether for you it's a level of wealth that enables you to, to bless others with your generosity, whether it's good health or bad, whether it's a happy marriage or one that often brings heartache, uh, you can be content with the knowledge that God is at work. So how in particular does Paul see God at work? Um, he mentions a number of things, and I don't think he mentions them in order of importance. The order, I think, has more to do with the fact that this is a very personal letter to Timothy. It's not a lecture at, the, at Christ College or something like that, a theological college. And so the four, first thing that he mentions to Timothy is in verses 3 and 4. We'll look at those now. Paul sees that, that God is at work providing the encouragement and support that we need from each other to serve him. God has not left us alone. God works through the support that we give to each other. The love of God, I think, often comes to us from the loving hands of others. And so he writes in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. We know from the book of Acts that, that Paul had invited Timothy to join him in ministry 
while he was on his second missionary journey, about 17 years earlier. And we know that for these past 17 years, Timothy has been Paul's faithful partner, uh, along with other men like Titus and Luke. The New Testament says that one of the things that identifies people as Christians is their love for each other. This is a love for each other that comes from God and we express that love in the way that we care for each other, uh, the way that we treat each other in the church family. And Paul says that when he and Timothy last parted from each other, uh, perhaps a reference to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, when Timothy went off to Ephesus and Paul to Macedonia, there were tears. After 17 years together, each man was aware, it seems, that the next parting could easily be the last one. And why that was traumatic was that each man had become precious to the other because of the loving support each had given. Uh, when I was a brand new Presbyterian minister, the first few years at Rutherford on the western side of Maitland, uh, they were pretty tough. And uh, it, I, I'd come into a, a dying church, had been vacant for four years, it didn't even have enough money to pay me. The interim moderator kind of tricked the presbytery into um, uh, sustaining the call or the, the appointment, as it was then. Um, I had three elderly congregations to care for. And God knew that I needed someone to support me, someone to encourage me. And he sent along a very godly man by the name of John Abbas. I don't know if anyone uh, ever knew or remembered John Abbas. He was then the minister at St Andrews in Newcastle. Lovely Dutchman. Uh, John and his wife, Meep, uh, would regularly invite Joy and I to their place in, in Newcastle for lunch on our day off. Um, they would feed us, they'd ask us how things are going, they'd give us encouragement and they would pray with us. Uh, sometimes John would just turn up at the manse at Rutherford. I'd open the door and there he would be with his arms outstretched and he'd walk in and he'd give me a great big bear hug He'd say, make some coffee and we'll have a talk. A talk. And uh, his love and his enthusiasm for the gospel was infectious. And he spurred me on in those early years as God's special gift to me. Uh, in verse 4 here, Paul writes to Timothy, recalling your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I wonder if you're the sort of person who, who helps, who encourages who has a, a kind and encouraging word or are you someone who kind of is always ready to, to criticise, always can see that something could be done better? Do your words and actions fill others with joy or disappointment, sadness? Paul's simple request to Timothy reminds us that in the church family, the Lord Jesus is honoured when we lovingly care for each other and, and help each other. Never underestimate the, uh, the value of your partnership with each other in the various ministries of the church and in life in general, in your shared life together. Uh, be sensitive to the needs of others. Think about how you can mutually support each other. Uh, God had provided Timothy as Paul's work partner for all of those years. And Paul trusts that God will provide him again in this last hour of need. And so Paul reminds Timothy 
that they have a special relationship as brothers in Christ. The second thing that Paul recalls is how gracious God has been to Timothy in saving him. Did you notice that? He's beginning to build up to the main point of chapter 1, which is the centrality of the gospel as the basis for all that we do. But Paul is reminded of the trust that Timothy has in the Lord Jesus and how God used the faithfulness of Timothy's mother and grandmother to bring Timothy to respond to the gospel. So God is at work in the covenant family. And this says something particularly, I think, to parents here who are still raising their children and to grandparents and aunts and uncles and so forth. Look there at verse 5. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded, now lives in you also. Paul can look back across three generations and see how God has been faithful to his promise. Well, what promise? What, what promise can Paul see that God is keeping? Well, the, the one that he made to his people when he first called them to trust and serve him. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 7 uh, is an example of that promise. Uh, one of the, the, the places where we find it spelt out. Uh, when God speaks to Abraham, I will establish my covenant, that's my, my saving covenant, covenant of grace, as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Uh, here God is making a covenant with believing parents like you. Okay? That he will not only be your God but also the God of your children and their children. And the means by which God fulfills this promise is through the godly nurture of children by believing parents and, of course, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul can see how God's truth was passed down from Timothy's grandmother, Lois, um, and from Lois to Eunice and from Eunice to Timothy. He sees godly parents pointing their children to Jesus through faithful teaching in the home. The godly example that they set and the Holy Spirit giving faith so that the child comes to a personal faith in Jesus uh, do you believe that God is at work in that way do you believe his promise uh, well you might say well of course I believe everything that God has promised uh, I'm just not quite sure how we should take this covenant promise or what I should do with it well what you do with it is the same that you do with all of God's promises you trust it and you act upon it. Uh, you treat your children as God's children, as belonging to him. And, and from birth, you nurture their faith in Jesus. You pray with them uh, and for them. And you look for evidence of spiritual growth as God works in them. Uh, Timothy was the product of such faithful nurture. That's what Paul's pointing out. Our right response as parents and grandparents is that trusting that God has promised to be the God of our children and our grandchildren, uh, we act on that by being faithful to Jesus, by nurturing our own children in the home, uh, pointing them to Jesus by our own godliness, making sure that the life of the church family also encourages them to follow Jesus. 
Uh, thirdly, in verses 6 and 7, Paul sees God at work in the way that he equips his people for service. So he's, he's moved from, from uh, Timothy coming to faith to the way that God has equipped him for service. And remember that this is all leading up to something that we'll get to in a moment. Paul's not plucking these thoughts out of his mind at random. In verse 6, he writes, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. Now, some people at this point get caught up with figuring out the significance of Paul laying on his hands, uh, laying his hands on Timothy in verse 6. But I think verse 7 is far more significant. I think that's where we should focus. Paul says that, that God has not given us, he's not equipped us with a spirit of fear, but he's equipped us in a way that we can serve him. And by the way, it doesn't really matter whether Paul means the Holy Spirit with a capital S, I think that's probably the meaning. Or spirit with a small s in the sense of uh, what animates or drives you. Because in the end, it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. So what does Paul mean by a spirit of fear that God's not given us? Well, a spirit of fear is when you're overwhelmed by the circumstances around you and controlled by them. And we've already seen that, that that's not where Paul's at. Remember I said that for Paul, his life was not controlled or defined by the things happening to him and around him, like being in that rotten dungeon, but by what God is doing. Uh, a spirit of fear means that you are focused on what you might lose of all the things that you're so attached to. And what this does is it paralyzes you. It's the opposite of a spirit of power. A spirit of power, then, is the ability to act in a way that's obedient to God, that honours God. It's getting the things done that God wants done in your life and in serving Him. And a, a spirit of fear is also the opposite of a spirit of love that Paul mentions because fear is being focused on self, isn't it? What this threat will do to me and my comfort, how I will cope, if I lose the, this thing that I love, that I'm so attached to, whether it's my own life or my job or the, the affection of my child or, or my money or whatever. Whereas a spirit of love is other people focused. It, it's caring deeply about God being honoured and others knowing him more than you care about yourself. And... Thirdly, a, a spirit of fear is the opposite of having a controlled mind or self-discipline, as the NIV puts it. Um, the Greek word is more about the ability to think straight and inform yourself of what is the right thing to do. You see, when you're controlled by your circumstances, uh, you can't think straight. You are kind of paralysed and you're listening to your heart, and your heart is saying, heck, I, ca I can't bear this loss. Um, I need to do whatever I can to keep the things that I love. They're my security. And at that point, 
what you need to do is listen to the sound thinking of a mind that is transformed and informed by God's word, a mind shaped by the gospel. And you need to tell yourself what is really true, that your life is not defined by that thing that you're afraid of losing, by the things that you have or your work or your bank balance or the health of your husband or the health of your wife or the health of your children, but by the fact that you are a child of God through the saving death and resurrection of Jesus. It is your life that is in Christ Jesus, as as Paul puts it right back in verse 1, that is the only thing that you cannot afford to lose. And it's the very thing that will enable you to bear every other loss. Uh, Some time ago, we looked after five of our grandchildren uh, for three days while their parents went to a wedding in the Blue Mountains. And uh, on the Sunday, it was, there was torrential rain. And we got them into church by stopping our, our car, our Pajero, right outside the, the church, and we carried the youngest ones in under an umbrella. When it came to four-year-old Daniel, he wouldn't get out of the car. Um, this was going to be a problem. You see, Daniel has Asperger's and sort of on the milder end, I guess, he doesn't cope well with change or unexpected circumstances. And he was clinging to his car seat. His knuckles were going white. Um, And he was crying loudly. He was saying, Grandpa, I'm too frightened. And I was leaning inside the, the back door getting very wet as I tried to to talk about this with Daniel. Uh, But for some reason that I didn't understand, uh, his little mind was overcome with fear and he said he wasn't coming in. Daniel was, was being driven by how he saw his circumstances. Uh, And eventually I had to take control and I said to him, listen to me, Daniel, there's nothing to fear because grandpa will take care of you. Um, You can come in and and you can sit on my knee and I will make sure that nothing happens to you. And I peeled his hands off the (laughs) car seat and I carried him into the church and he was still yelling but he soon settled down in in my arms. Now, Now God has given you a spirit of a sound mind so that when you are being overwhelmed by some fear by some circumstance, you can take hold of self and you can recall the scriptures and you can tell yourself that you do not need to be controlled by your circumstances and by the fear of some loss because in the gospel, in his provision of Jesus, God will keep you safe. You need to take hold of yourself and speak to yourself with your mind about what is true. That what God has done for you in Jesus is what you must cling to and nothing else. And that brings us then to the main point that Paul is making in these first 12 verses. The the climax, if you like, of this first part of the letter. Uh, Verse 8 is a call to Timothy to be loyal or faithful, first of all, to the Lord Jesus... And secondly, to Paul in his imprisonment. Look at verse 8 with me. Therefore, uh, or so, 
do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. There's an undeserved humiliation that God's people experience in the world by their association with the crucified Jesus. There's a cost in following Jesus and living by the gospel. I don't know about you, but my, my um, fearful heart tells me to avoid that humiliation if at all possible. To give in to the fear of verse 7. Which is why we need to listen to Paul's appeal that follows. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. In other words, be willing, Timothy, by the grace of God to bear whatever cost there is in living for the Lord Jesus in our hostile and broken world. But why would Timothy want to do that in the first place? Well, the, the secular world says that life is to be found in serving self, in helping self to find pleasure and happiness while you can. Uh, false religions claim that life can be earned by your own efforts, such as following the teaching of the Quran. But God declares in the Gospel that life is found only in Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. It's not because of anything that we have done, says Paul in verse 9, but because of God's own purpose and grace. Uh, even the best person on earth deserves nothing but death and eternal punishment for the, for the shameful way that God has been treated. That God has saved his people by punishing Jesus instead. God has come in human flesh. He's rescued his people. He's given them a sure hope and a future in the kingdom of Jesus that will fill the earth. And their response is to take God at his word and trust in Jesus and follow him. Every other pathway leads to death. Death has terrible and everlasting consequences. It does not mean nothingness. It does not mean to escape or a chance to come back, or a chance to join your mates, you know, in hell. Uh, or to have another go. It means to face the awesome anger of God over the way that we've treated him. And only Jesus has destroyed death and gives life and immortality to those who trust him. God's gospel, God's momentous news about life through Jesus is what saves us and what defines how we are to live for Jesus. And God, by his Spirit, gives us understanding of the gospel as we are drawn to Jesus. We're filled with love for him that only God could give. I couldn't love God without that. We want to fall down and worship him, don't we? We're appalled at our own disobedience of one so glorious and, and we repent before him. We long to serve him. Well, Paul says in this letter, the gospel shows us how we should now go about living for the Lord Jesus in this broken world. And one of the big questions that this letter of 2 Timothy raises for each of us over the weekend is, um, what, what ideas, what truths shape my life? Am I perhaps more influenced by the ideas and values of the world so, so powerfully conveyed in the media? Yeah, we're bombarded, aren't we? By the world's ideas? Or am I influenced and shaped by the gospel? 
Do you, do you think about what God says in the Gospel when you are making choices? When you're setting priorities, when you're justifying your spending and, and your behaviour and your opinions and your plans. Uh, in the next talk we're going to think about how the Gospel should shape our ordinary day-by-day -day work, our labour. Paid work or unpaid work. Paul says the Gospel gives us the assurance that God's promises to us will all be delivered. Look at verse 11. And of this Gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Trust is a big issue these days, isn't it? Uh, because so many people that we needed to trust turned out to be villains. Well, in the Gospel, Paul sees why in the end only God can be trusted. In the Gospel, he sees why we should be glad to suffer the present cost of following Jesus. He sees that the, a final day will come when he and all of God's people will be vindicated Today the world says that we're losers if we're Christians. But a day is coming when the people of the world will choke on that scorn. Because in the Gospel, we see that only Jesus will deliver life. And that's what gives Paul all the confidence that he needs to, to simply live in every circumstance, even in a stinking, rotten prison dungeon, in obedience to Jesus. He's counting on the life that God has promised. He's trusting that even though he might soon die at the hands of the Roman Emperor, Jesus has destroyed the sting of death for him. He's banking on a place in God's new kingdom. All these things he's entrusted to the Lord Jesus to deliver on that day when he returns. That's what he's saying in those verses. Well, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in this morning to bring you life? What circumstances are dominating your thinking and your decisions? Well, Paul is saying that because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus revealed in the gospel, the truth is that God alone can be trusted. God alone can be looked for and looked to. And that trustworthiness of the Lord Jesus is all that I need. It is all the certainty and assurance that you need to live for him in a broken world.